I'm so happy. I'm so happy <laughs> that my brother is here right now. We're all familiar with this scene. Exonerations have been making headlines for decades, ever since we started looking for wrongful convictions. I think I'm just, when I get over to St. Paul, I'm just going to walk for a little bit. A chance at life again. Just a new chance at life. After a decade behind bars, a man who's maintained his innocence for years is finally set free. I've always thought this was an injustice. I believed Sherman was innocent the very first time I looked at his file. There are cameras, weeping families. We wait to hear if the person is bitter or forgiving. But I don't think they took my life away. I think I go from this day forward and um, doing the very best I can. This was the scene when Sherman Townsend was let out of state custody in 2007. He had served 10 years after being convicted of burglary in the late 90s. He was let out after the star witness, a neighbor of the victims, came forward and said, I was the burglar. I pointed Sherman out to avoid getting caught. That neighbor, David Jones, came into the courtroom in 2007 and testified on the stand that he had committed the burglary, in chilling detail. Sherman was released a week later. But Sherman was not exonerated. He still carries the conviction for that burglary. Because while he waited to find out what the judge would say, Hennepin County attorney Mike Freeman offered him a deal. I'm Emily Havik, and this is Record of Wrong. In this podcast, we're going to look at what it takes to get out of prison once you're in there. How hard it is, even if there's new evidence in your case, like someone else confessing or a chief witness recanting. And whether you can really be found innocent after being found guilty. The burglary that sent Sherman Townsend to prison happened early the morning of August 10th, 1997. It was a summer night in the Minneapolis College neighborhood of Dinkytown. Police were called to a home where they found a burglar had cut the screen window on the bottom floor, crawled in, and assaulted a boyfriend and girlfriend in the upstairs bedroom. The woman said she woke up to the man sitting on her with his hand on her throat. She said he struggled with her boyfriend, too, before running away. The victims described him as a black man, muscular build, wearing a dark shirt, in his 20s or 30s. A roll of duct tape was found in the bedroom. One of the officers on the scene immediately thought of Sherman Townsend when she heard the suspect description. He had a burglary record, and specifically in this neighborhood. But his last conviction was six years earlier. And he was 47, considerably older than what the victims described. About 15 minutes later, Sherman was detained by police a block and a half from the scene of the crime. Police thought, what were the odds he'd be so close by that night? Sherman says it's because he had friends in the neighborhood. He hung out there frequently, drinking beers and playing music. Meanwhile, a neighbor of the victims, David Jones, told officers he had seen the suspect. He was walking by when he said another black man ran into him coming out of the home. When police pulled up in the squad car with Sherman, they asked Jones if this was the man who had run into him. He said he was 100% positive that was the guy. Neither of the victims could identify Sherman when they saw him, but the woman said his build was exact. The man did something strange. He sniffed Sherman, he later testified in court, because he had so little to go on for identification. It had been dark in the house, and he didn't think he would recognize any physical characteristics. He thought a smell might jog his memory. He later said in court that he was worried the police had just grabbed the first black guy they saw on the street. 
At the scene, he told police he didn't think Sherman was the guy. Sherman's alibi was that he had been buying cigarettes at the Amico station nearby. Unfortunately for him, he didn't have a receipt. The clerk confirmed he had seen someone who looked like Sherman around that time, but couldn't confirm exactly when. Police believed it was possible Sherman had bought the cigarettes before he committed the crime. Sherman told the officers, do I look like I was in a fight or choking somebody? They thought that was suspicious, because they hadn't told him details of the crime. But Sherman later said in an interview with Minnesota Monthly that when the male victim looked him over and sniffed him, he mentioned that he'd been in a struggle and his attacker had tried to choke him. Sherman was charged with two counts of first-degree burglary. Each had a maximum penalty at that time of 20 years in prison. He remembers the feeling of getting carried away into this case. You know, being accused of the crime I had no part in. And, uh, yeah, it was upsetting. <laughs> Didn't have the money for a lawyer or bail, so... I've read the trial transcript, so I'll try to give an overview of what happened in that courtroom. Sherman hired a defense attorney, Stanley Nathanson. He was offered a plea deal from the state for 48 months in prison, and the judge told him that she could possibly even convert it to probation. Right before the jury came in, she asked him if he wanted to take it. I'm innocent, he said. I have to go for the whole ball of wax. Sherman's trial lasted a week. His defense attorney got the first jury tossed out because it was made up of all white people. The new jury heard from both victims, who could not identify Sherman in the courtroom. The woman said she was sure it was a black man, but her boyfriend couldn't be sure it was a man at all. He said it could have been a very strong woman. The jurors heard from police officers, and they heard from David Jones. The whole trial hinged mostly on his testimony, and he was flipping back and forth. He hadn't wanted to testify. He had even been arrested for not showing up to court. A couple times he said Sherman wasn't the guy, first in a signed statement, which he signed the wrong middle name to, and then to a judge in the courtroom before the trial started. He said at one point in his testimony that he was drunk, not sloppy, but headed in that direction, the night of the crime, then later took it back. There were no usable fingerprints found at the scene. The prosecutor got the judge to let him introduce Spriegel evidence, that's evidence about past crimes, of one of Sherman's prior burglaries just blocks away from the house. In that one, Sherman pleaded guilty. He had taken a total of $6 from the apartment of three sleeping college girls. There was no assault. There was a lot of back and forth about the description of Sherman's clothing and whether it matched what the victims and David Jones had said. Even the prosecutor kept mixing it up. Blue shirt, black pants. Blue pants, black shirt. David Jones himself looked at Sherman's clothing from that night, an exhibit at trial, and said it didn't look familiar. The woman testified that she had initially said he wore jeans, but she actually never saw the attacker's pants. She said she was very upset at the time and didn't know why she said that. In his closing argument, Prosecutor Gary McLennan painted David Jones as someone who didn't want to step into the fight, but knew he had to do the right thing. He referenced the Red Badge of Courage and a war movie called Battlefield. He acknowledged, quote, segregation, but he praised Jones for testifying against another black man. He told the jury the state believed Sherman's intention had been to rape the woman in the house. He admitted, though, that wasn't in the charges— 
because the judge had said there wasn't enough evidence of intention to commit sexual assault. When the defense attorney, Nathanson, gave his closing argument, it was about a quarter as long as the prosecutor's, at least on paper. He warned the jury about the discrepancies in the suspect descriptions. Sherman was 47, not in his 20s or 30s. David Jones said the person had a goatee and a beer belly. Sherman did not. The clothing description didn't fit perfectly. He said, quote, We don't want people picked up because they happen to look a little bit like somebody who might have committed an offense. He told the jury that sometimes when police officers focus in on one person, they don't look at other suspects. Sherman chose not to testify in his own defense. If he did, the prosecutors could ask him about even more of his past burglaries, so he was silent. And the jury believed David Jones. They convicted Sherman of first-degree burglary. The judge told him she thought the guidelines probably called for nine years. But when she called him back for sentencing the next month, she gave him 20. When I talked to Sherman, I asked him what he thought about during his 10 years in prison. What did he miss? Everything. <laughs> Be at the beach, spending time with family, spending uh, time with my grandchildren. Yeah, I wanted to do everything I was doing in normal life, but wanted to be doing. The TV doesn't help because you're watching everybody else do everything. Right after Sherman's defense attorney finished his closing statement, Sherman did something unorthodox. He tried to fire him. He told the judge he wasn't satisfied with his defense. He wanted to represent himself. He had an argument with the judge and his attorney while the jury was out of the room. He finally gave it up, but he was not happy. He filed an appeal after he was convicted, saying he had ineffective counsel. He was denied, but I think it's important to note that years later, in 2012, Stanley Nathanson was suspended indefinitely from practicing law in Minnesota for failing to act with reasonable competence. I got a hold of Judge Deborah Headland, who remembered Stanley Nathanson. She thinks if he had been bad enough, she would have taken some action, but she acknowledged that the defense failed mightily in Sherman's case. Sherman kept filing appeals and kept getting denied. Two Hennepin County attorneys fought him over those years, Mike Freeman and Amy Klobuchar, then Mike Freeman again. Freeman said in one response, no material facts are in dispute in this case. In 2002, Klobuchar said Sherman's petition should be denied, quote, in the interests of finality. In 2006, she fought another petition from Sherman, saying the claim was clearly meritless. Every appeal was denied, several times by Judge Hedlund herself. Then, in 2007, something extraordinary happened, the kind of thing you hear about on TV. Sherman ran into David Jones. Sherman had been in prison for about nine years, and he knew he wouldn't be eligible for parole until at least year 13. For some reason, he always remembered an experience he had early on in his sentence, a spiritual moment. You, you probably won't believe this, but when I first went to prison, when I first got into uh, St. Cloud, all of a sudden the sun just shining bright in my cell, right? Now it sounds like a voice told me, kept telling me, Ken, you know? Well, it didn't mean anything to me then, but it was right at 
10 years that uh, this thing got uh, overturned. What do you think so, that was? I personally think it was God or one of his angels just speaking to my spirit. I just believed it, you know? So, um, then uh, just about what, what was it, about nine or nine and a half years in, uh, that's when uh, David Jones showed up. The Great North Innocence Project was already looking into Sherman's case at this point. Legal director Julie Jonas remembers it well. It was one of the first letters we got when we opened, and he was really compelling because he said, you know, look, I, I'd been to prison before. If you look at my record, when I do something wrong, I plead guilty, I go to prison. I didn't do this one. Funny enough, Sherman said it was his past that kept him sane as he served this sentence. He told himself, maybe I'm paying for crimes I didn't get caught for. What was really the, the turning point in this case is we received a letter from a man who said he was in prison with Sherman. And he knew Sherman was innocent. And furthermore, he knew Sherman was innocent because he's the one who committed the crime. And that guy was actually the neighbor. So he had purposefully framed Sherman, um, frankly, because he had been watching this woman and sort of stalking her from his window and thought, because he was so obsessed with her, she would know who he was. Um, So he thought if he went outside and told the police it was a different black man and acted as if he was trying to be helpful, he would throw suspicion off of himself. And it worked. It worked perfectly. After David Jones testified against Sherman in 1998, He went on a couple years later to be convicted of criminal sexual conduct, and he ran into Sherman in prison. When he found out that Sherman was doing time for that same burglary and how long he'd been there, Julie Jonas says he wrote to the Innocence Project and told them that he was responsible for the crime. It was May of 2007. Julie says her perception is that he had a crisis of conscience. He agreed to testify in court then was very, very cooperative with us in putting together an affidavit. He met with us for hours. He described the inside of the victim's home in ways that nobody else could have um, and ultimately came to court and testified under oath that he had done the crime. On September 24th, 2007, in front of Judge Hedlund again, Sherman took his case to court. Julie Jonas and another Innocence Project lawyer presented the new evidence— a confession from David Jones, who took the stand and testified for two hours, a detailed map he drew of the crime scene, a chilling description of how he had stalked the women who lived in that home, planning to rape them. For Sherman, just this hearing in itself was cathartic. Some of his family members were there, hearing someone else confess to the crime he'd been locked up for the past decade. Two of them sitting in the courtroom when uh, David Jones was testifying at this uh, um, motion for a new trial hearing. Uh, so they heard him. They heard him testify. Well, so I think that helped him quite a bit in believing that I had no part in that crime. Sherman and his lawyers knew that prosecutors believed maybe he and David Jones cooked this whole thing up in prison together. At the hearing, the prosecutor brought attention to discrepancies between David Jones' story and what the victims said years ago. For instance, Jones said he fell on the couple and pressed against them to get up, while the woman said a hand was over her mouth and she woke her boyfriend up with her screaming. Jones also said he probably left a lot of fingerprints, 
which the judge questioned him about because no usable prints were found at the scene. The prosecutor called out how much bigger Sherman was than David Jones, and how the woman and her boyfriend both said their attacker was very strong. The prosecutor said that Sherman could have fed David Jones all the details he shared. But Julie Jonas pointed out that David Jones' caseworker signed an affidavit, saying that she never saw any evidence that Sherman threatened him, and that Jones told her privately that he was not being coerced. When Julie got up to give her closing argument on Sherman's behalf, she said she believed this was a case of actual innocence. Your Honor, as I stand before you, Julie said, I think that this is one of the most important things I have ever done. After that hearing, Sherman, Julie, and their team could do nothing but wait for Judge Hedlund to rule on whether she thought the new evidence warranted a new trial for Sherman. But a few days later, Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman came to Sherman with a deal. If Sherman would withdraw his motion for a new trial, Freeman would ask the judge to re-sentence him to time served. He would walk out a free man, but he'd have to accept the conviction for the crime. If he turned the deal down and received a new trial, the conviction would be wiped from his record, and it would be up to Freeman to decide whether to try to convict him again, starting from scratch. You know, all we can do as attorneys with clients is present that offer to our client, right? Um, We bring it to our client, and we really try and leave it up to the client to decide. I would say that most attorneys in Innocence Projects would say, I would like my client to hold out and not take the deal because if they receive a full exoneration, they have the potential for compensation and they have the potential to get it off of their record. And, and so, so from that perspective, you know, you kind of, you don't want your client to take those offers, but having said that, you know, it's not my life. I had second thoughts about accepting the judge's deal because I knew because of what she was asking me to give up. Because it wouldn't say, I'm innocent. It would stay stayed on my record. It also kept Sherman from trying to get any financial compensation for 10 years in prison. Um, yeah, I just think I gave up too much. <laughs> Why did you take it? Because I've been in prison 10 years. Because my mother's health was slipping in on one of the main things I asked God for at the beginning of prison, please don't let my mother die while I'm in prison. And she ended up dying five months after I got out, so. The plea deal went through on October 2nd, 2007. Just over 10 years after Sherman was taken into custody, he walked out into the sun and a crowd of reporters. The quintessential scene. But I don't think they took my life away. I think I go from this day forward and uh, doing the very best I can. But Mike Freeman spoke to the press that day, too. He served tenure for a crime that we believe he did. Uh, it's appropriate that the judge let him out. That's not all he said. He told reporters it would be impossible to retry Sherman. And of course, that's likely true. Their prosecution hinged on David Jones, who now claimed responsibility for the crime himself. Mike Freeman was quoted in the Pioneer Press saying... We believe Mr. Townsend did it. We no longer have the evidence to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Wait, what? Can he do that? 
Can he offer a deal to keep a conviction on someone's record, knowing full well that he no longer has the evidence to prove it? And how often do prosecutors offer deals like this? This is the question that sent me out on months of reporting. And thankfully, I met a researcher who had found an answer. Next time on Record of Wrong. Sometimes prosecutors, when confronted with very powerful evidence of innocence, go to great lengths to try to preserve the convictions, um, including making plea offers that are essentially so good that um, it's hard to turn them down, even for an innocent individual. So the system has just beat them down and beat them down and beat them down. And then a prosecutor says to him, you can leave tomorrow, right? And you're not going to be on probation. You're not going to answer to a probation officer. It will stay on your record, but maybe you have a little criminal record anyhow, right? But is it ethical to offer someone a plea deal if you know that you don't have the evidence? Well, <laughs> um, those of us who are in a position to prosecute might want to ask, you know, are we doing this thing the right way? You know, because some people think, well, if this guy gets out, it's going to embarrass us. We want to avoid the embarrassment of a wrongful conviction and the liability associated with a wrongful conviction and just sort of like covered up by hoping that the defendant just takes a deal. This is Record of Wrong, a CARE 11 original podcast. Check out recordofwrong.com for more information about the cases we cover. Record of Wrong is reported and produced by me, Emily Havick, with editor Rita Butero. Original music is by Dave Mailing and me. Dave Mailing also did our mixing and mastering. Original artwork by David Malman. Special thanks to Lauren Olson, Janine Vogelar, and other Care 11 management and staff for their contributions, and to the people who shared their stories with us.